Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 514 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I want to give a special thank you to Leonard Tatangia, who just gave the book its first five-star review on Kobo.com. It says, David Barkertley is a master of interviewing guests on his podcast, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Once in a while, he talks about his own work and writing, in the context of panel discussions with other writers. It's clear that he has put much of his life into writing, even though his focus is now on the podcast. His method involves a great deal of learning, understanding, and perfecting his writing. It shows in this collection of his stories. Each is finally crafted into among the best of short stories. Each story is a page-turner. These are gems of science fiction, horror, and other genres. The author's notes are an important part of this book. They detail the process and give insights into the minds of the writer. I look forward to more stories from this author. So big thanks again to Leonard Tatangia for that great review. And our guest today is David S.F. Wilson. For the past 20 years, he's been a writer, director, animator, and special effects artist at Blur Studio in Los Angeles, where he's worked on feature films such as Avengers Age of Ultron, and on video game trailers and cinematics for games such as Halo Wars, Mass Effect 2, Bioshock Infinite, and Star Wars The Old Republic. He also directed the feature film Bloodshot starring Vin Diesel and the Sunny's Edge episode of the Netflix original series Love, Death, and Robots. I'll also mention that I've been doing some work with Blur Studio, pitching ideas for an upcoming project. That's all I can say at the moment, but I will definitely say more as soon as I can. And now here's our interview with David S.F. Wilson. All right, so we're here with David S.F. Wilson. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, David. I think that's the first time out loud, other than my mother, everyone's actually called me David S.F. Wilson. <laughs> I was actually curious, what is the S.F.? Does that stand for science fiction? Like, uh, uh, science it's, fiction uh, is your middle name? <laughs> um, you know, I didn't actually realize that until I was in my teenage years. But no, it's my grandfather's names, Seymour and Fellow. So when you're five years old in school and you have to write your full name out, it takes a while when you've got that many. <laughs> Okay, so my first question uh, that I usually start off with is, how did you first get into fantasy and science fiction? Um, just reading, really, in, uh, in, in sort of junior school and then in high school. I started with fantasy. I loved, uh, I think, David – well, it was actually even before that. I feel like Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl is a sort of gateway to, to fantasy. So very young, I read that, and then I moved very quickly on to David Gemmell, and I read his entire – sort of Draenei Tales catalog, and then it was everything, you know, The Magician and some Terry Pratchett, and but then, and then you know, that eventually became sort of Dungeons & Dragons and video games and everything like that, but it was mostly, I would say, probably David Gemmell was my first fantasy love. You know, I've never read David Gemmell, but this story that I heard once has always stuck in my head, where he was, I think he, he was a pretty big, strong guy. He had worked as a bouncer. And uh, he was on the train platform or something one night, and there was a, a mugging going on. And he thought to himself, "What would Boromir do?" And he jumped <laughs> in, and that's funny. I've never heard that story. No, I, uh, yeah, I, I his, uh, 
Yeah, I actually need to. I was having a conversation with Neil Asher recently, uh, another author I like, and he. I've I've never actually spoken to anyone about David Gemmell's books, and I always felt they were maybe these guilty t- this guilty teenage pleasure. And he was like, "No, those books are amazing. Like I just reread them like you know five years ago, and now I feel like I need to go back and revisit them." Um, uh, but there's also that part of me that feels like they they sort of occupy this wonderful space from my teenage years that may just disappoint me in my sort of now being a bit older um, like the vacation places you should never revisit as an adult but we'll yeah see. yeah that's always dangerous going back to stuff that you loved as a kid i mean that's you know people call it the sock fairy the sock fairy came to visit while you were gone have you ever read that <laughs> <laughs> i haven't been yes uh, I imagine I don't know. I, 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 Neil Asher gave me sort of a renewed sense of confidence that the books were as good as I remember them being. So there's a specific like set the the Waylander series he wrote. I love that character. Like the book has a is like a three or four book arc to it, and the end of the fourth book or third book I can't even remember which one it was was so, so fulfilling and and sort of uh, it just had a, an amazing ending to it uh, that I kind of want to go back through it. But again, like I'm worried I'll disappoint myself. So we'll see. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned Terry Pratchett, and was it like the Raymond Feist magician? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I quickly, it's funny, in high school, I quickly moved away from fantasy and then started and then got into science fiction. Uh, uh, I, you know, and, and I shouldn't say that. And obviously, I've read the sort of classics like the George R. R. Martins and the, and the uh, Tolkien's and, and whatnot. But I got into fantasy later in high school. That was the sort of Gibson's and Stevenson's and, and, uh, Holderman and Alfred Bester is uh, Stars My Destination is probably one of my my favorite novels of of all time. Um, uh, and then, but my sort of I would say my favorite favorite is this sort of subset of science fiction that I like to call science fact, which is sort of Michael Crichton and Daniel Suarez, and they that sort of very plausible sort of just beyond the horizon science fiction. I, I love that. It's sort of that's my my favorite. Yeah. Well, let's definitely come back to all of those. But so you grew up in South Africa, right? Yes. I I was uh, born and raised there in, in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, and I moved to LA when I was 25. So what was it like being sort of a science fiction geek in South Africa? Was it like pretty much all the same stuff that you would have read growing up in the US? Or was it different at all? Well, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure what uh, kids in the U.S. were reading growing up, but I can say it was there weren't a lot of kids reading science fiction and fantasy and playing video games in the er, in the eighties at my schools. Um, you know, South Africa is very much a is a, the school I went to was um, a very sort of sports focused school, which was fine, and you know, we sort of played a lot of sports at school. But my best friend, even when I got to high school, was uh, we were sort of athletes by day and and uh, and and nerds by night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when we got home, you know, all we wanted to do was get on our computers and and you know, we that's who I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with. But then when like the video games and like Richard Garrett's or Lord British's like Ultimate series came along. That was it. So, it. so we sort of left the the D and D campaigns behind. But it was, you know, it was a sort of no, you know, it was a bit weird, not frowned upon, but it was it, it was a very small community of people, you know, uh, sort of PC gamers and uh, and science fiction and fantasy folks back then. At least, it, like, it felt like 
there were there were far fewer of us then than there than there are now. But I loved it. It was not luckily enough like no one no one ever sort of uh, gave us a hard time about it. <laughs> I talk a lot. I'm a huge Ultima fan. I talk about that a lot on the show, and I almost feel like the uh, the eight virtues like became my religion or something. Growing oh, up. that's funny, <laughs> I, man. And you know what? It blew my mind too, and I didn't realize it. Like I remember, I played. I think the first one I played was Ultima five, maybe or four, and then I went back and played the others, and then obviously I played every every new one that came out, but. Um, Blur, who I've obviously worked with for many years, like there was the end to like the Black Gate one and like the, uh, the, I forget even the, the creature's name now. It comes out. The Guardian. The, the Guardian. Thank you. Guardian comes out of the Black Gate. And I remember like I watched the end of that, that game like probably 50 times because like the graphics back then, which w- would have been like early 90s maybe, were amazing. And then I found out later that Blur, <laughs> Blur actually did that. Uh, I didn't know that, but uh, yes, I loved those games. I used to have to wedge my spacebar down to, and then go have dinner so that I could sail across the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. And so, and so then I, I just I watched a, another interview with you, and it said you 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 met Neil Blomkamp somewhere around there. Oh yeah, um, it sort of. What would that be in the mid nineties? No, late nineties, and. Uh, so there's there weren't very many people doing like visual effects and computer graphics in South Africa at that time. Uh so you could sort of there was a it was a very small community so you everyone and then I was I was in college. I remember I was second year I dropped out because I'm like there's nothing I want. I went to my guidance counselor and I was like I want to do I want to make movies and interactive entertainment and visual effects and this he was this like 60-year-old Afrikaans guy. And he was like, I don't even know what to tell you, son. That does not sound like a career, and I would not advise it. And I was like, oh, man, I'm in the wrong place. And <laughs> I dropped and I dropped out, and I was just sort of trying to find any semblance of a like, animation school or visual effects or anything, any sort of film. I didn't want to do traditional filmmaking. I, I wanted the sort of, like, you know, hybrid digital and visual effects version. Of, but no one was teaching that in, like, 96 or whatever it was. Um, and then I met Shalto Copley and that's how I met Neil, like Shalto and his partner at the time, Simon Hansen had started this sort of renegade little film studio. Um, and Neil had, uh, sort of, they all went to high school together, I think in Johannesburg and they were sort of making their short films. And Neil was making these amazing, like not everyone knows Neil for like the first things is like the alive in Joburg and, and whatnot. But before that, he was making these fully animated little videos of like robot rebellions. And this is right at the time, like Pixar is making Toy Story. So, I, you know, I love Toy Story, but I would see what Neil was making and be like, I want to do that. And and that's sort of, that really like set me down like a, a path of animation for 20 years. Like I was like, I want to, and I sort of didn't turn. And that's how I, I met Neil like once or twice in South Africa and, and, and briefly, and he came by Blur once in in LA, but I haven't seen him in, in years and years. But that our, our paths did cross because it was a very small community. And so, so how did you meet Charlotte Copley in the first place? Like through the internet, or I was at a uh, no, I was I was at like an animation school, and Charlotte and Simon came by just to talk about what they were doing, and they left, and I sort of. <laughs> 
ran off to them and I was like, can I come and work for you? And, like, and they're like, but you're in that school. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'll just drop out. <laughs> and and uh, and they were like, well, don't do that. Like, just finish. And then, so I finished like one year at this little animation school, and which was teaching like traditional animation. I was literally like painting cells. Um, and, uh, and then over my summer vacation, I went and interned for them in their like computer graphics department, which was literally like me and one other person. And, uh, and then after the summer break, I was, I was like, I don't want to go back. And I'm like, can you give me a job? And they were like, yes. And then that led into like a whole bigger partnership that endeavor went bust and, and Shalto, Simon and I started this visual effects company and then, I ran it for them and they were still doing their TV thing. And so we had a partnership for a while. It didn't end well back then because I wanted out. I didn't want to run a company. I just wanted to like create content. Uh, but Charlton and I have remained friendly. I saw him a couple of months ago, actually. Uh, he was going off to film with Idris. Um, I think the movie's called The Beast. But so, yeah, we're still friendly. We just, you know, common paths. We wanted to, you know, we were all sort of trying to make films and, uh, and do it in South Africa, which is difficult because everything sort of comes there from somewhere else. They film, they pack up, they leave. And we wanted to be on the ideation part of that process. So we all sort of packed up and left. Well, because in this other interview, you said that Neil Neil Blomkamp went off to film school in like Vancouver or something. And then he left behind all this, um, like all the stuff on his computer. And you kind of like picked it up and started. Oh, yeah. Like or- he, he had... He went to the Vancouver Film School, I think, and uh, and you know, Shalto and Simon still had like a lot of the like Lightwave work files he'd been working with back then. So I'd open them up and like poke around at what he'd been doing. It was funny though, like how I remember he came back one of the times I met him. He came back to like a, a like just a, a vacation in South Africa, and and he came by like the offices that we were working out of, and he sat down at a computer for like an hour and he modeled something and it was amazing just like how much like you know if you're in it and you're watching someone else do it it's very like uh, that process of learning just by seeing someone other's methodology to how they get something done is is like is awesome and i just you know it's one of the things i i kind of don't like about what's happening at blur right now where it's just like there's we're all segregated like in other words we're sitting in our homes working you don't get to walk by someone's desk and see how they're doing it so like just yes, the files he left behind, like even being there a little bit when he was doing it himself, like uh, was very informative. He's like amazingly fast. I remember that being like how quick he could model and put things together. Like it was, it was, it was awesome. And then you said somehow Tim Miller like found your work online or something and and invited you to come work at Blur. Yes, although Tim would, I, I actually feel like the first few people I spoke to were. It was like a very like the, even even in the states it was still a very small community of online uh, on like three D artists that were online and there were a couple of them like Neil Blevins was one of them uh, he was pretty prolific he would write a lot of tools for Max and the reason I found Blur is they're very sort of community based with their tools anything they would write or make they would publish online and like and it was like I said it's a very small community so you're always kind of looking for if there was a like a, a way to do something quicker or faster or a workaround they would they would put it online and you could download it so I I met a, a bunch of them online like that Feng Zhu was a concept artist time this uh, Richard Bluff and Jeremy Cook went on to be ILM supervisors um, Neil is uh, at was at Pixar the last I heard I'm not sure where he is now. 
But I met them all online, and then you know Tim eventually popped up and and said, "Do you want to come and work?" And at the time, I, I think it was like twenty two or twenty three, and uh, ILM and Digital Domain, the same sort of thing. They were all like, I had opportunity to go to all these places. But the thing about Blur I loved is it felt like this small little place where you could make a big impact rather than like a, a you know one of a thousand and i and i just like the people there they they've had a very um sort of frontier like approach to how they were doing things you got to do a bit of everything um, rather than like being a like a specialist at one thing and I, and i like that more because ultimately i i wanted to tell my own stories and direct so i felt like i want to the larger impact i can have over the production uh, or the broader impact, I should say, over the production, the better. So I, Tim eventually called and flew me out, and I've sort of been with him one way or another for the last 20 years. So what was that like? So you're 22 or 23 or something, and you moved from South Africa to Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I actually waited two years. My lawyers advised me because they were like, if you go between the ages of 18 and 25, then you're eligible for military drafting, and the Gulf War is about to sort of flame up so i was like you know what i'll just i'll wait two years <laughs> and then i'll go um so i i i worked for a little bit from south africa like remotely and then i got on a plane um when i was 25 or 26 or something like that but it was pretty amazing like i'd never been in like you know any visual effects studio in south africa had three or five people in them and blur had 20 or 30 at the time when I got there and within the first year it was up to like 60 or so because we we expanded for this one project but uh Tim had a knack for finding folks all over the world and it was like this sort of little like home away from home of like uh, disaffected lost boys if you will <laughs> we all sort of banded together like you know my my best friend was this artist from Finland who is still one of my closest friends uh, there were a lot of uh, French people and uh, Korean and uh, Belgium, actually. There were two guys. Uh, and we sort of all, you know, we didn't have any family in L.A. So, like, that studio became our family. So, it was it was pretty amazing. I've, you know, it was – we just – but, like, in an unhealthy way, too, in that we just lived there. Hmm. Like, we, we – we'd work seven days a week, 14 hours, 16 hours a day. We didn't have anything else to do, and we loved the work. So it was it was pretty awesome. I like I mean I'm I'm not sure it, you know it, I would advise it, um, but I loved it. It it really did feel like sort of the the frontier of of CG at the time it was pretty cool. So what sort of project? Like what, what were some of the big early projects that you worked on that sort of stick out in your mind? Well, most of the I you know back then the, the Blur was most known for game cinematics. So we we would basically be doing trailers for video games. I don't know how many people know that. And ride films were the actual other thing. Like, we didn't do a lot of film visual effects. I felt that I personally didn't like it. It was sort of paint by numbers in a way. And But the, the cinematics, we got to we got a lot of freedom. And in the, the first few years... Um, the, my favorite in the, of was there was a Warhammer spot that we did that I still love that we got six weeks to do, which was an insane. No one wanted to do it except for me, but I'm a huge 40K fan. So I was like, we have to do this job. Um, I love that. We do a lot of, we did a lot of Halo. Um, I worked with this, uh, like one of the sort of legends of gaming, Graham Devine, when, when they first did, when we did Halo Wars together. 
um, Graham and I, which was awesome. Um, and then a little later, after like after being there a couple of years, the Star Wars stuff started coming in, and I'm also a giant Star Wars nerd. So that was that was those are some pretty big highlights for me. I know yeah, I'm I mean, forgetting I- so many projects, but uh, yeah, <laughs> there were a lot. Well, no, I was really excited actually when I looked at your IMDb page that you did this um, uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic uh, Return. It's called right because um, I've never even played that game, but I, I love that trailer. I mean, I've watched that like twenty times over the years, you know. So, um, oh, even, okay. It, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like a great little movie. Even, even like I said, like I've never even played the game, but I just watch it over and over. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, no, they. I look. I'm a big Star Wars fan, and at the when those trailers came in, um, you know, Tim. Tim would always get a call from someone, yeah, and then he'd be and then he'd come over to my desk and be like, "I just got a call from LucasArts," and I was like, "Oh God, please God, be the Force Unleashed," because I was playing the Force Unleashed at the time, and I was such a big fan of that game. It turns out it wasn't that; it was the Old Republic, which I hadn't heard of because it hadn't come out yet, and I was like, "Ah, oh, what is this?" And uh, and then it, it's funny; it was at the time when no one was doing anything with Star Wars, so it was after the prequels. Uh, but obviously before the, you know, the, the sequels and, and there was like very few people paying attention to Star Wars. So we were given a lot of freedom. Um, and so they came and they told us what we would, the uh, Bioware, um, who were making the game came to us and said, this is what we're doing. And all they, they gave us, that's why I said we were given a lot of freedom. Uh, and they would say that it's essentially the Sith are returning and we want some story that showcases the sacking of Coruscant. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, can I write any, whatever I want? It's like, yes, but you got to feature a bounty hunter and you got to, and we got to have some Sith and we blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, no problem. And then I went away and, and wrote the, that trailer where they, like, I think it's called Deceived or whatever. And that was the first one we did. Um, and it, what's amazing about that is like, I still, you know, that character, there's a character in that called, uh, Darth Malgus who, who, didn't exist until I wrote him in that script and we put him in that trailer. And now there are books and statues and it's, <laughs> I still sort of pinch myself that there's a corner of the star Wars universe somewhere that like didn't exist until I, I put it down on a page. So that, that part to me is like pretty, pretty happy about that. But then we did, we did four more after that. I think one of them I didn't do. Uh, I didn't uh, write and direct Tim did. But other than that, they, I did most of the Star Wars trailers. And then eventually we did get to do some Force Unleashed trailers too with uh, Hayden Blackman, who I love, who's, I think, one of, I love his Star Wars writing. He's, he's great. Well, I, I just love those, those, cause it, it's, you know, the one I'm thinking of, Return, it's basically, it's this big lightsaber battle. And, yep. I know, you know the way it's, you know, and you see, you know, it's like force blasts and ripping, you know, pieces of machinery and hurling them around and stuff. And it's, it's all just choreographed in this really amazing way. And I think it exceeds any of the action scenes in the movie, the live action movies, honestly. But I mean, how, how much of that, like, did you just sit down and write like, Oh, and then he like throws his lightsaber at him and he like bends down and it like, goes, uh, no. well, lightsaber. that one, that is the one, the one you have watched ironically. I think that if I'm remembering the one, that is the one Tim did. Um, the, I mean, you're listed all, as the director on it. I mean, oh really? I oh, that's up. weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just misremembering. But they, we, I mean, we write the 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 action in the cinematics is pretty specific. So we usually do write it up beat by beat. But um, we work 
you know, the when we did the first one, we used to do all of our motion capture ourselves. And I literally mean we would get in our own the suits ourselves mm-hmm. and do it. And I and when we did the first trailer, I was like, guys, we've we've got to get better like action. We gotta get real stunt teams in here. I shouldn't say that because we had some stunt teams, but like like folks who are excellent and and professionals at at sword play i want to want to bring them in and, and motion capture them and it's funny because at the time 8711 which is obviously now you know david leach's and and chad stahelski's company and it's everyone knows who they are but at the time like you know they they weren't as well known and and i tried to get them to do it but we couldn't afford them so i ended up we you know we built our own little team and uh, and uh, the stunt coordinator at the time, Philip Silvera, who Tim actually went on to work with on Deadpool. I think he's actually maybe doing Halo now. Um, he ended up being our sort of go-to resource for all those. So we would get in early to a mocap stage with with Phil. And like you would do stunt prep for any film or, or, uh, or ser- TV series, we did the same thing. So we would block it all out. We would certainly have the, the major action beats like you talked about. Like we, I want to throw the lightsaber or, you know um, – force pull some debris over here or there but it was all like we would plan that like like any film shoot with with stunt teams yeah no and i def- okay no no no. i was just gonna say of course like we do storyboards and previs and all that stuff as as you would yeah and i would just definitely encourage everyone you know listening to to watch these things because i yeah i think they're so amazing oh thank you um, they actually they I I I recently rewatched them because someone ran them through a like 4K AI algorithm and they look amazing. They look better <laughs> than when we made them. So I there are like supercuts out there which string them all together. Um and it is uh they were fun to rewatch. It's funny I'm I I'm have a project with Craig Kyle who was one of the writers on on Thor the, the Dark World. And when that movie came out, I got a lot of texts and I was like, wait, what's going on? They're like, dude, you got to go watch it. And there's a scene in there <laughs> where this like ship from the, the Dark Elves crash into like Asgard. And it is, it's it's very familiar to a trailer that that we created. And when I finally sort of went with Craig, he was like, yep, we'd seen those. <laughs> so um, they were a lot of fun. It, like um, it's always um whenever we would get a call to do another trailer uh star wars trailer it you know it, the artists at the blur get at blur get very excited so it's uh they are very much passion projects at the studio so it's a lot of fun yeah so when did you first like get wind of love death and robots like when did you hear that that was going to be a thing um that has that had been a thing for a very long time so um Prior to it being Love, Death, and Robots, like you know, Tim had tried to get um, Tim Miller, who who runs Blur. We had been trying to make an anthology series based on heavy metal, essentially, and nobody wanted to do it. And this is pre-streamers, so at at its peak, um, we had a movie, and we were going to do like six or seven shorts. Um, and Jim Cameron would do one, Zack Snyder. Gore Verbinski, uh, Guillermo del Toro, Tim, David Fincher, and it couldn't get, we couldn't, couldn't, they couldn't do it. And I'm like, if you can't get it done with those names on the poster, yeah. then you're, then you're never going to get it done. <laughs> um, and they couldn't. And then, and Tim had generated all the, like, well, that was based on sort of curated pre existing short stories that like Neil, like many short story authors had written. And, so, but we couldn't get it going. And then 
after the success of Deadpool, like David was like, now's the time to try again with um, because Tim had, sorry, David got involved early with Heavy Metal because Tim and him and sort of uh, brainstormed it together. But they on sort of on the heels of the success of of Deadpool, they they took it to Netflix and. You know, I think the streaming model is perfect for that sort of content. So they said yes, and and then it became Love, Death, and Robots. So how, how did David Fincher get involved with Blur in the first place? Like he, he knew Tim from way back, or how did they know each other? No, so I I'm sure you know David's history, but obviously he was he was at ILM. I think he was like a matte painter or something like a, something like that at ILM. So he was very well versed in like animation and digital uh, and visual effects and whatnot. And so I think it maybe was like 2009 or 10. Um, someone put blur on David's radar and he came out and, you know, David can, can be a, a, a pretty opinionated uh, gentleman himself. So is Tim. So I think they've got along like two peas <laughs> in a pod and, uh, and, and, you know, that was, the sort of beginning of the relationship. But then we helped David on like little visual effects here or there. Like we don't, we've never done a lot, but we would do favors for folks. But I think the the most, the largest collaboration we did with David was the opening titles to the Gold Dragon Tattoo. Um, but so we've done little bits on, on David's projects over the years, but they, you know, it was just a sort of industry introduction. Someone told, I'm sure Tim knows the specifics, but someone's uh, recommended, uh, David go down and check Blur out, and he did. And so then you ended up directing Sonny's Edge, which was the first episode, at least in the order that I watched it on Netflix. So how did you kind of get directly involved with that? Well, I so I directed at Blur for many years, and then when Tim was directing Deadpool, uh, well, Tim was the creative director at Blur, and I was a director there. Um, Jeff Fowler, who did the who just done the two Sonic movies, he was the uh, uh, the other director at the time. And when David went to do, not David, when uh, Tim went to do Deadpool, sort of I took over as creative director. And then again, once Deadpool was done, Love, Death and Robots took off and and, uh, Tim asked me if I wanted to direct one of them. And he put a couple of of the shorts that he had selected on my desk and I read Sonny's and I was already a big Peter um, Hamilton fan. Peter wrote the Night Storm trilogy. If you haven't read it, it's awesome. And... And Sonny's is almost like a precursor to the Night Storm trilogy. Um, and I loved it. Uh, and I called him back that night and I was like, I want to direct this. And it's, you know, it feels a little easy to say that's how it happened. But I've, you know, I've been working with him at that point for like 15 years. So, um, and then it was, it was, you know, it was probably, it was the last thing I did before I went off to make my movie, but it was, uh, it was pretty pretty amazing. Like I, I, I'm authors are like my rock stars, so it's very intimidating. I think the most intimidating thing in life is emailing authors because I just feel <laughs> like they read my emails and cringe. But um, uh, you know, I, I put this presentation together for what I wanted to do with the Sunny's Edge short, and then we had a, a Skype session, pre Zoom days with Peter Peter Hamilton, and I. I sort of wa- I shared my screen and walked him through the presentation of what I was going to do, and I couldn't see Peter at the time while I was walking through it. And when I finished and I closed the presentation, it was just this a gentleman staring back at me with this sort of ear to ear grin, and he was so excited um, that that sort of that made my my year. And then and then when they he actually watched it in a theater in London at the premiere. 
with Alistair Reynolds. And he sent me the most amazing email. Uh, he said, he was saying, I haven't experienced a feeling like that since I was a kid in the theater watching Star Wars and the Star Destroyer rumbled overhead. He was like, it was the, and, uh, he, he's talking about when he watched Sonny's and Alistair was, Alistair Reynolds wrote, uh, Beyond the Killer Rift in the first season. And, uh, it was just, it was nice. Nice to hear that from sort of your, your, uh, literary idols. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I don't know if this is the same thing or not, but I mean, I, um, I was sent this sort of video presentation that you narrated for what you were, you know, what the aesthetics of, I guess this is probably, I guess it was made after the thing was completed. So it's, I guess it's not the exact same thing, but you walked through like, I want the arena to be an octagon. Oh, you saw, oh, right. Of course. Yes. Um, I forget that's those things get shared. Um, yes. Uh, that, that is what I, that I did that before, you know, obviously before the, that was my director's sort of guide to what I want the episode to be. That's what I walked Peter through. Okay. Um, and then I went, what I did was, and uh, funny, I, I did that with Sonny's and then I, I had to do it so many times that I ended up recording myself and I did this with my film too. I, I now make a habit of it and I have one for the series that I'm on now where I, you know, it, inevitably you're giving some sort of presentation to groups of people to either get them on board or whether it's casting or, or whatever it might be. And I find it's like the best tool for indoctrinating like the, your crew or your cast or whoever it may be onto the show. So I've like, I look back at that Sunny's one and I'm like, Oh man, this is so dry and boring. Um, <laughs> but it sort of was the basis for like building these, what, you know, these pitch videos that are, I, I find like a, a nice way to get people excited and also in line with the, what you're trying to do uh, as a director. No, I, I thought it was really good, and I mean, it's one of the things that really made me want to talk to you because you know, you know, you know, you just you just seemed so like passionate and sharp on this thing, and so intentional about so many uh. of these details of what you <laughs> wanted the arena to look like and the Edwardian uh, uh, outfits and and stuff like that. I just uh, it was really because um, I, I don't do you know I don't do animation obviously, so it was really interesting for me to just I never thought about all you know I just watched the the 17th yeah. <laughs> thing and i was like that was cool you know but just just i was just getting the sense of just how much work goes into one of these things i mean like i think you said it took a year to make this 17 yeah. minute it did it did it takes so it sorry go ahead yeah, yeah well could you just say like what why does it take a year to make a 17 minute long short film <laughs> um it's very precise and slow. I, you know, a lot of people would ask me, like, what's the difference between live action and animation? And I, I would say directing, live action, directing animation. And directing animation is like directing in slow motion in that, like, you, you make a decision and the results of that decision manifest over weeks, you know, sometimes. Um, so, and as a result, you have to be very precise with what you're doing because, you can't just be like, oh, let's try it this way. And then $55,000 and a week later, like, <laughs> oh, th that, I, I, you know, let's try again. Now you can do that. It's very expensive. And, uh, you know, uh, there are a few directors out there who are afforded that level of like exploration, I would say. But I do, um, it takes a long time just because of the nature of how long it takes to create everything. It's, it's very similar. I uh, process, you know, we do the same you know, storyboarding and pre-visualization or layout, you know, we, we go on stages and shoot, uh, obviously, but then like, there are hundred teams of hundreds of animators and artists and lighters, and that whole process is segregated. I think it's going to change over the next 10 years with real time, but it just, it takes, everything needs to be built from scratch, you know, um, 
and it just takes immense amounts of time. Like you can't start the animation until the characters are built, but you and then the characters need to be rigged and once they're animated, then you can light them and it's this long process of building everything bit by bit. I, I love as a director it is there there's a there are like fundamental differences between the two, but you you wield an immense amount of control in, in animation because it takes so long. Um, and you can and you can be hyper specific about what you want. So, how many people worked on Sunny's Edge, and is it like people were working on it for a year, or was it like you have a team of um, people who make models or something, and they make all the models, and then they pass those off to yeah, other it, people? And exactly, it's it is a sort of like roving teams of of artists, and I think so. You know, once you finish, so you have layout artists who sort of set the blueprint for the whole episode. And while they're doing it, modelers are coming in and they'll model the, you know, the characters based off the designs or the, the environments based off the designs. Then the riggers come in and they, uh, you know, they'll add all the skeletons to the characters and how the animators are going to animate them. Then it's the animation team. Then it's the lighting team. Then it's the compositing team. Then it's the effects team. Well, actually, the effects team and the compositing team are usually at the same time. But they're all, um, you know, I would say there were 20 animators, 20 lighting artists, 20 compositing artists. I mean, 100, 150 artists when all said and done on Sunny's Edge at varying, at various stages. Um, something like that. And, you know, because of, that's why we, we're usually doing multiple episodes or multiple projects at the studio at the same time because you got to keep, you know, every, the, the, the modelers can't wait eight months for the next modeling cycle to come around. So they'll, they'll, you know, go from show to show. But it's yeah, it's a it's a very focused process, which means you can, like I said, you like you're not, um, like you're hyper focused on one aspect of production at a time, which is great. But it also means like you're not looking at a final frame and making decisions as a director based on all those components together. You're really just doing them one by one, which is again, it's nice in in that you control, but it's not nice in that when you finally see it all together, you realize you may have missed some other opportunities. You mentioned Alistair Reynolds in there, and you know I, I told you my my three favorite um, episodes from season one of Love, Death, and Robots were Sunny's Edge, the one you directed, and then Beyond the Aquila Rift and Zima Blue, which were the adaptations of the Alistair yeah. Reynolds stories. Um, I was just curious, like, did you? I, I mean, I don't think Blur did those, but I was just curious if you know anything about the the creative oh, process yeah. or anything. I mean, we did, you know, Blur. Blur does in either Love, Death, and Robots, uh, in most of the seasons, they'll do two or three. They'll actually, the studio itself, um, the artist at Blur will produce, but it's too much contest for Blur to do it of its own. So, you know, the, the game cinematic world is, is a pretty tight community. So we know a lot of the other studios. So Beyond the Killer Rift was done by this amazing, uh, studio in France called Unit Image. And, uh, I, um, and the, they sort of the, the directors work at the studio. And that was, that blew my mind. They also did Snow in the Desert, um, from season three, uh, two. S- sorry, s- season two, volume two, I should say. They did Snow in the hmm. Desert in that one. Um, which again, I, and I just, and then I, they just look amazing. They're one of the, the best CG houses out there. I love them. Um, and Zima Blue was, um, I'm going to mess up who the studio was, but Robert Valley was the director, I believe. Um, I don't know very much about Zima Blue Beyond. It is an absolute, like, head and shoulders favorite. Um, there were like three of them, like three robots. I know Sonny's was a popular one. 
and and but Zima Blue, I think a lot of people really loved. I think it's fabulous, and Robert's an amazing director. Um, so I, but I don't really know much about that. But beyond the Killer Rift, I I can tell you, like it was, they they put so much you know love uh, into that into that spot. Um, it just looks incredible. The nice thing about a lot of these those animation houses that that like you know helped us with Love Death and Robots and worked with us, our partners. They, you know, they they've all cut their teeth on on game cinematics and commercials, but there are a lot of constraints with that. And really, all Tim does with Love, Death, and Robots is hand them the script from the short story and say, sort of, make it yours. And there's an immense amount of freedom there. And they all, you know, I think, all of that freedom shows up on screen because they they poured so much more uh, into it than you know. I I think there was time allowed for. So that those are those are good ones. Yeah. And then you mentioned Snow in the Desert, and that was one of my favorites from season two. And you said it's based on a Neil Asher story. I actually interviewed him about um, his collection, The Gabble and Other Stories, and, and The yep. Snow in the Desert stories is one of the stories in that book. So I had, I had read that before I watched the, um, you know, volume two. Um, but you mentioned that you've, you sort of interacted with Neil Asher. So, like, what kind of interactions with him have you had? We have, um, so Tim and I have this other series we're, we're developing that, um, we've sort of invited authors to collaborate with us on and Neil Neil was one of them. It was pretty amazing. Um sort of I'm a I'm a big Neil Asher fan, so it was kind of like getting to meet all like again all, all the sort of rock stars of your of your youth. <laughs> um I had a long chat with him, but like <laughs> Neil did not want to all he wanted to talk about was like the other books we've all read. That's why I said David Gamble came up um with him. But Neil, I, I am very familiar with Snow in the Desert. It was one of the the shorts in the original heavy metal packet that I wanted to direct. I was like, I want to do this one. Um, I just and when season two was rolling around, Tim was like, We're doing Snow in the Desert. Do you want to do it? And I just couldn't. I didn't have time, and I couldn't commit to it. So I, I was a bit bleak about that. But um, I love that short. Um, and it, yeah, it was done by Unit. I just saw it in the theater recently when when season three or volume three launched. Um, they screened some of the the new shorts and some of the old ones in a in a movie theater, and I'd never seen the Love Death Robots content up on a in a, in a movie theater. And was watching Snow in the Desert and then they played Sunnies too. Like made me kind of go like, why aren't they animated movies like this? And I'm like, I'm making it my mission over the next five years to get something like that up on a screen somewhere. I just feel like, you know, it's, it's, it deserves it. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying for you, I mean, like Love, Death and Robots is like the kind of show, I mean, I've been saying for years, there should be, you know, they should take science, great science fiction stories, you know, published science fiction stories from top authors and do them as animation. And it's like in an anthology format. So like love death and robots. That's exactly what I, you know, have always been saying I, should be. Yeah. Uh, I just, there, you know, there, you know, some of those, and I say it in my pitch for this series that we're making, um, uh, that the, you know, so, some of my favorite science fiction stories, they are very adult in content, right. And they're very sophisticated and they don't pull any punches and, it's it's the problem is they're also expensive to make and as and i think the sort of hollywood system of of when there are sort of you know 150 200 million dollar price tags like there's a sort of sanitizing that happens in my opinion that is like sort of kills a little bit of what i loved about a lot of these stories and ironically like you can like the the cost of making a like a a 
a high-end animated animated uh, film is a fraction of what it would be to do it in live action. So part of me is like, just, let's just take a shot at live ac- at doing it animated and see what that looks like. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, Final Fantasy came out years ago, and I didn't do anyone any favors as a sort of you know test uh, case for what that would look like. But I think we're getting closer to the point where I'm hoping we can we can do. Um, we can take a shot at that. I mean, I see all these video game adaptations like Mass Effect and whatnot, and part of me wants to be like, oh, man, that should be like the highest-end animation we have to offer. Like, And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, but maybe that's just because I'm biased because I love animation. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, because there's just so much you can do in animation that's, that's hard to do in live action. And out of the live action, there's sort of like a weird discontinuity between the live action elements and the cgi elements and then if it's just all animated then everything just fits together more smoothly and uh you know seamlessly yeah and it's just easy like i mean i'd you know like you can do a a a complicated crane move in a computer in five seconds and on a on on a set somewhere it is hours of setup and rehearsal and practice and i get and it's just like and i'm it, it's tough. Like it, all that takes time and money, and I'm like, I want to be able to do that that stuff in uh, quickly. And I, I came back and we from from filming, and and Tim had put this like little sizzle reel of of all these these different IPs, these animated IPs that we were kind of building this new series out of. And I watched it, and I was like, it just feels like the biggest blockbusters out there. But it it costs like a, a quarter of the price, and I'm like, if we can just, but I don't know if it's like if there is something that that people disconnect with when they they know they're watching animation. I don't know. That's why I feel like we have to make at least a movie at that quality that looks like that, um, and and see and see what happens. But like there were just so many pro- like Doom, for example, like. They should they should not make Doom a live action movie. It should be like the the like a sea change of animated films for that sort of content. Uh, and I just I want to see what that looks like. I mean they they've tried and it didn't work out. Well, like I didn't like the you know the the previous installations of the, of that franchise. I'm like the next version should not be live action. It should be an animated movie, and it should be R rated and aggressive and like nothing you've ever seen like in that space before. But I don't think you do that live action. I think you make it animated. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. So you, you said that you um you couldn't do Snow in the Desert because of you were busy with other stuff. Was that Bloodshot? Was that yeah, what was going I, on? Yeah, I was in, I was in I was in the middle of post. I really wanted to do it, but it was just no way it was going to happen. Do you want to just say like what was the experience like of doing Bloodshot? Because that was I'll say it was a, a live action feature starring yes, Diesel. It, so yeah, it was. It was you know it was I loved it. And at the same time, it it was frustrating because a lot of, you know, how I had been working for the past 15 years, I sort of had to leave behind me. And that was my comfort zone. I think the most daunting part of going off to make a feature is in like the space of one or two months, you build an entirely new creative team. It was my first feature. And then you sort of set out on the biggest creative endeavor of your career. And you, and you've rolled the dice in a, in a, in a large number of ways on, on, and, not all those dice paid out, out for me, and I don't just, I'm not talking about crew or cast or anything like that. I just mean it's like I, I wanted those same core group of people that I'd, I'd worked with, but obviously they they come from animation, um, so that was that was tough for me. But the actual process of it, I love filming, I love filmmaking, and there's like I said, the process of 
of an- there's there's nothing quite like framing up a shot in live action and seeing all those elements come together at once. It is it's pretty amazing. Um, I love that there's a sort of happy accident that happens on a live action set in terms of what the actors bring or what the day brings or the crew brings or your DP and and when those those all do come together, they can create something special. But I'm used to, I guess. I'm a little more meticulous, and I think if you've seen that Sunny's Edge sort of pitch video, I, I, I like to plan and precisely execute. And I think I wasn't quite prepared for the some of the sort of freewheeling aspect of of live action filmmaking. But I loved it. I I, I happily returned to it. But I think I would do things differently, knowing what I know now. I mean, in this other interview with you I watched, you said that you read the script and you, you suggested some fairly major revisions to it and you didn't think they were going to go for it. But then they they're like, oh, this is great. And they ended up changing. Well, their- yes. Um, yeah, I was like, um, I was actually in the middle of another mo- prepping like or like very close to the sort of starting line of another movie. And I was like, I read the script and I was like, I don't like this as it is, but there was a core of an idea that I liked about this concept of the sort of illusion of choice um, in this sort of, in a technologically advanced society. And I was like, I like that. And here's what I would make the movie. And I threw out bunches of, and, and, and I expected them like, you know, usually at that point, if a movie's been in development for as long as it has, and some people have come and gone no one really wants to spend any more money on development, so especially on first-time directors. So I expected them to give me the usual, like, no thanks. And and then they came back, and I'm like, we really like all the ideas. Like, <laughs> I was like, you realize I want to change a lot of it, right? And they were like, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, and and they did. Um, and that's – I Eric Heiser was on at the time, who is one of the nicest human beings on, on the planet – and he and I uh, sort of set about getting it rewritten. Because it has, it does have, it has kind of an interesting premise. So, you know, the, the premise is that it, it seems, I guess, at first to be this kind of standard revenge action movie where the main character, his wife, has been killed, and he's he's out to get the person who did it. And yep. then about a third of the way through the movie, and this is not too much of a spoiler because it's in the trailer, but. Uh, he, he Everything's started. in that trailer. <laughs> <laughs> well, so maybe, maybe you think there's you think there's too many spoilers in the trailer? Or? Oh man, you don't know. Yeah, this, the whole movie's in the trailer. But anyway, it's fine. Um, but yeah, but but so it turns out that he's um, sort of uh, his mind is being manipulated to make him think that different people killed his his, his memories being erased and, and reprogrammed over and over to sort of yes. direct him at different targets under the mistaken belief that this is the person who killed his wife. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, there's, I think the hardest thing, yes, the, the, the main concept of it all was that sort of everyday boxes of logic beyond our control make decisions. Uh, and, and we sort of follow those decisions by, blindly. But the sort of magic trick of these technology companies is the false sense of agency, right? You, you swipe right, you swipe left, you click accept on the route that Google Maps tells you to go. You know, these are, you know, and, and you feel like because you're hitting the button that says accept, you're making that choice. But there were a thousand routes you could have taken or a million of people you could have gone on that date one on. But it's the person who makes the menu that controls the, like the, the most sort of informative part of the process. And I, and that's what I, the story was about to me. It's like this, you, you're not going to commit to something if there's only one choice. But if you feel like you're making the choice, you sort of devote a lot of sense of your own self to that choice. 
And I, I liked what that had to say about like a lot of how we live our lives today. Because the, 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 the crazy part about that whole thing is like, you don't even know who's behind the curtain making those choices. And if they changed hands or if it was sold to someone else, like, how would you even know? And, uh, and, and I think that sort of curated sense of, um, you know, media or existence that we live today is, is pretty, um, pretty frightening to me. Um, uh, and I, I like the idea of a film that would ex- explore the sort of extrapolated but fun end of that. I think in the pitch I gave, the, the film can't be a TED talk. So it was, it was <laughs> essentially like there has to be like a superhero aspect to it. Um, there were, you know, there was, it's, it's a tricky balance between entertaining and meaningful. And, you know, it's, it's difficult. I think the hardest part about being any sort of storyteller, especially with something as, as involves so many people like a movie is that there's the, there's what you want to make and there's your own tastes and there's like ultimately what you make. And when they, and when they're not exactly where you want them to be, that's the hardest part as a creator, um, is that you kind of go, well, we almost got there, but it's not everything I wanted it to be. But, uh, but yes, it was very much about the idea that, you know, um, this sort of a manipulate the sort of technology manipulation manipulating our lives yeah well and, and you mentioned you know or it's been announced that you are you were working on an adaptation of influx which is based yep. on a daniel suarez novel do you want to say anything about that yes that is still going um i'm still very much it is a big passion project of mine but like, it's funny i was talking about the the dangers of technology and influx is its core premises and I, I i highly recommend the books i don't want to give it away but the main conceit is this this bureau of technology control that essentially regulates technology and and they decide with a rather with a large sort of sense of autocratic oversight what technology mankind is ready for. So there's this basically this curtain and behind it is our sort of stolen future. Um, and I love that. It is, I think it is very meaningful sort of um, conversation that uh, we're having today, uh, you know, in the sort of zeitgeist, I should say, but it's a big popcorn movie. Dan is a, a good friend of mine. We actually like in, uh, we were doing, I've been wanting to adapt Demon and and the follow up to it Freedom for years. I love the, that's how he and I met over those two books, and we've been wanting to like uh, to find a project to do forever. And after after Bloodshot, like that became Influx. But I'm like I think if Dan could, and sorry, I could, could could you say like when when you say you met over those two books, like what is what does that mean exactly? Oh, uh, <laughs> so I I it's a. I'll, I'll try and tell the story as quickly as I can. I I, I directed this trailer for The Division, and uh, uh, Chris Anderson, who used to edit Wired magazine, um, tweeted something about it. He was like, "These things are a new art form," and because I'm a giant dork, I w- and I'm I'm not really hmm. very prevalent on on social media. I found Chris's email address and and emailed him, and I was like, "I you can't believe what a <laughs> what a kick that is for me. I'm such a big fan of Wired." Blah blah blah. And he emailed me back immediately, and and then as as nerds do, we started talking about drones and warfare and all sorts of things. And Daniel Suarez's books came up. He wrote a book about drones called Kill Decision, and I and he was like, "Oh, I'm a huge fan of Dan's too. I'm having dinner with him like next week. Would you like to join us?" Which is like for me, that's like getting a, a like a, you know box tickets to the Super Bowl. Hmm. I don't you know um, so. It was the most exciting dinner of my life, um, and 
it was, there was eight of us there and I didn't really get to talk to Dan much at the dinner. And all I wanted to talk to him about was demon. Um, and I, after dinner wrapped, like we were leaving and I said, I've, I love demon of freedom. I'm a huge fan. Like, what are you, what's happening with them? And he was like, Oh, I, I have a scripted paramount. And I'm like, I know I've read it. And, and he was like, Oh, that's how did you get? And I'm like, it was, it was quite long in development at that point, but he was like, you know, what, what do you think about it? And I was like, well, I mean, I love the books. That script is not your books. I'm sorry. I don't like it. And yeah, I, I won't uh, get into the details, but that we became friends over that. I mean, look, if you've read that script, like if you've read Demon, it's an amazing book, but that script ended with them in a bunker in Rio unplugging the internet. And I was like, what is this movie? So, um, I, it, and, we became friends over it. We talked about it. They like, we developed it for a long, long time. We wanted to make a TV series into it. Um, and, and we still do. Um, uh, but what happened was I came back from making my movie and I was like, all right, let's get back to demon. And he put the manuscript for Delta V on my desk, which is another of his books. And he's like, I want to do this. So we got sidetracked and are still doing that. So you're doing Delta V as well as Influx, or you're? Um, we sort of we are developing it. Let's say it's a longer term thing for us, uh, but it is. There are projects that are, are you want to make because you know, Influx is a big fun popcorn movie, and it does have something to say. But Delta V is a, a very meaningful project to Dan as it is to me, essentially the story of how we become a spacefaring species. It's, which, you know, I think is an important aspect of who, who we are and what we're going to become one day. And it's just this amazing sort of frontier story about, you know, like conquering the, the, the greatest frontier ahead of mankind. Uh, it's inspiring. I think, I think we need to get there. And I, you know, so if, if you watch that Sunny's Edge pitch video, I may I made imagine like that times ten on steroids and <laughs> I I I'm sort of you know built this pitch video for Delta V that we're hoping hoping one day to get set up. But it is uh it is a long road. It's a very, very uh, sort of expensive series, but um you know, because it's all it deals with asteroid mining. But uh it's sort of one of those those stories that uh, let me put it this way. Like the end of the pitch is me sort of essentially saying there's a part of it which talks about how science fiction sort of has inspired some of the largest technological leaps that our species has ever undertaken. And I believe that as storytellers, we need to be, we shouldn't be sort of riding in the wake of like the Bezos's and Musk's who are building rockets. We should be inspiring them on you know what we want to do and like that's what the series is about i mean i could go on for hours about Hmm. delta v and and how we're we're not sort of we're not where we should be with space exploration but uh yes that's if i could click my fingers that would be one of the projects that i would love to see happen very soon it's just very meaningful to dan and i yeah, no, that sounds amazing. I always love, you know, when there's, I, I always feel like there's not enough outer space science fiction. So just anything involving outer space, I'm always, always really happy to see. Oh, it, it's, it's a um, pretty amazing. Um, but it's also, you know, this, like this, like, uh, there's this amazing TED talk by the NASA's chief economist. And it, t- it talks about that, how science fiction literature inspires the moon landings. Uh, like, and it, it charts this 300 year journey from the first science fiction book ever written 
which is like this bishop of Hartford who wrote this this like novella about a goose powered moon machine. And and you sort of track it through like Edgar Allan Poe to Jules Verne to H. G. Wells and it's this amazing journey of how you can see the influences of one to the other and how it and eventually uh you know becomes the the Apollo program. Like so much so that like the, the you know, like the the from from the Earth to the Moon is like a three day journey, three men taking off from Florida, which are the exact parameters of the Apollo program. It's like it's amazing how much they all like all all these sort of rocket engineers and scientists were influenced by like literature. So it's like I I really do feel a responsibility as storytellers to sort of really think about what stories we tell next. And it's a story about how we, you know, become like take that first step and I, I don't know. It it's it's heartbreaking to me that like well heartbreaking like we we haven't had as much success with getting it set up as I think Dan and I would like but it is one of those projects where we will never give up I just think it's it's too important to both him and me. Well, it sounds amazing. Yeah, I definitely hope that happens. I want to also mention you mentioned the uh, um, the division trailer and I oh, yeah. I just went and watched that because I saw the Chris Anderson tweet where he said you know this is a a video game trailer that made me cry, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's really it's not like anything I've ever seen. It's like this sort of um sort of time lapse pan from an apartment to the street yeah. as the um as as it goes from like a normal everyday reality to a sort of post apocalyptic reality. Yeah. And then you see sort of like all this you see the environment changing but not the people mostly who are changing it. So you'll see, you know, uh cars crash and uh, bullet holes appear and blood splatter and stuff, but no, no people. It's just this, um, this, this eerie time lapse sort of thing. So, can can you talk about just how did that concept? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I'll try and be quick, but it's a longer story. So, the creative director at at the at um, the 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 game studio who making the game, like Blur, got a call for this game called The Division. I'd seen a gameplay video, and I was like, oh my god, that game looks amazing. Um, and they had a sort of brief of what they wanted and we came up with a concept within their brief and they were like, this is great. And the creative director was like, but it's exactly what we wanted. He's like, I want a concept that's going to make people uncomfortable in the boardroom at Ubisoft. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, no problem. And the, you know, at the time, like it was this dead island trailer that everyone was talking about. And I'm like, no problem. I'll go away and I will write that trailer. But here's the problem with it. Like that, that dead, dead island trailer is emotional, but it has nothing, barely anything to do with that video game. In fact, like some people would argue it was misrepresentative of the game. But I'm like, but it's it stood like the, out. The, the zombies attacking yes, people at the, the, the hotel or exactly, or yeah. exactly. And and I'm like, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to write it. You're going to love it. And then people are going to try and stop it every step of the way. And unless you and I are standing side by side, it'll never make it. And so he was like, no problem. And I went away and I I, I wrote that that trailer and it essentially like i'm always looking for like a north star like something to grapple onto and and in in the stories about like the decline of of new york during a pandemic i i you know i'm sort of oddly unfortunate now but um that's what the game was about and so and it was essentially the concept that like when you know the shit it's the fan like people turn their back on one another and there was this idea that tragedy is an is invisible and like because we turn away from it or we cross the street or we don't look out for one another because we sort of like slip into self-preservation. And and so that's why you can't see anyone because it's the idea that we, we choose not to. And so I, I wrote the trailer 
And I was not wrong because about halfway through when we had the first cut of it, Ubisoft called and they were like, your trailer's depressing. Like, <laughs> you, you need to, you need to, uh, you need to change it. And specifically, there's a suicide in it. And the, the head of the Ubisoft was like, it's making me uncomfortable. I'm like, do you understand the irony in what you're saying? And that the whole trailer is about that we choose to turn away from things that are uncomfortable or difficult because we like, we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, have to deal with it. And it's the, that, that emotional experience that you are having is the point of the trailer. And, and like to, in their defense, they listened to me like sort of soapbox for about five minutes. And then they were like, you seem like a rather passionate fella. We'll, uh, we'll let you carry on. And they, and they, they, they made me add some flamethrower guys at the end. But other than that, they, they left me alone. It was one of the few trailers where, like they no, it didn't really change. Uh, they, I, I directed what I wrote, and to credit to the creative director uh, Rodrigo Cortez, like he stood by my side and defended the decisions all the way through. One of my favorites. Yeah, no, that's so great. Now, like, like I said, like I, I didn't know this whole story about the division trailer, but definitely I, I hear the passion that they were talking about, and also the passion for the Delta V project. And and I, this is exactly what I wanted, why I wanted to talk to you because like I, I totally detected that just watching the um the Sunny's Edge uh, presentation. Oh, thank you. you. Yeah, that's kind of you to say. I, I will say this: it is like I don't know how you take the time we take to make the things we do with the hundreds of people you will you know, invite on these journeys with you without being that passionate about it. It's a very hard choice to, I think the hardest choice you make as a director sometimes is like what you actually do choose to direct because what the other projects that will die behind closed doors as you're doing other things is, is terrifying. Like, you know, if I go off, like, you know, you go off and make one thing, like what happens to the other thing? So, but I don't know how you do it without like an immense amount of passion. Like I, it just takes too long. Like, and I think, you know, like those, the little videos that I make, I made one, uh, um, I made, you know, I made the same one for, for my film. I'm, I made the same one for the series. And it's just, you just need to get people excited about it. Like, and, and I, then they will only hopefully like hand the baton to the next person with as much enthusiasm as you gave it to them. Uh, anyways, I, I like, but it's, it's easy, like, like to be excited and passionate when you, when you love the stuff. Like it really is. Like it's, I still, like, even though, like, I'll miss out on something or I didn't get it or something didn't turn out the way I wanted to do, I, I kind of go back to my 15-year-old self in high school. And, like, if you could tell that 15-year-old kid who was, a, like, all he ever wanted to do is what I'm doing now, that you'll get exactly what you hoped you would get to do, like, I I, I wouldn't believe him. Like, you know, so um, it's, it's, been, it's been a ride. Yeah. Well, so, so this has been so great. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, but you have, you've alluded a couple of times to this, this thing you're working on now. And I know a little bit about this, but I don't know how much like, I'm allowed to say. So I'll, I'll leave it to you. But is there anything you want to let people know about what you're working on these days? You know, I would just say it's the sort of love child of, of everything I have, you know, adored over the, my 45 years on this planet. It is a sort of infusion of, all my favorite authors, the video games I played, and the animation I, I've been a part of with Blur. I think that's about all I can say, but it's like sort of the, the melting pot of all those things together to create like one one thing. It is, I, I, I'll give this one little anecdote that I, it, it does feel like the, 
uh, in, in one of the I when I was 15 years old in high school I, I wanted to make part of my thing was making video games I wanted to make video games and well amongst other things and I was uh, developing a game and Epic Epic Games obviously make Fortnite at the time or Epic Mega Games they make Jazz Jackrabbit and One Must Fall and Epic Pinball and I sent them a sample because they were a share company um, and I got this e- this letter back from Tim Sweeney like a signed letter, like, you know, we'd love to see what you're working on. And there's like a bunch of, you know, free games and developer stuff. And, and I was 15 years old and I'm like, and I'm in South Africa. And it, like for the first time, like my, my dream of doing more, like was, didn't seem that unattainable. And I kept that letter. It's sort of 30 years later, it sits on my wall in, in my office. And I, <laughs> like finally, um, I was on a call about a month ago with Tim Sweeney and I'm like, I'm a little late. I'm getting back <laughs> to you, but, uh, you know, it's, it really like, it does feel like that what the really only thing I can say is that the, the project is a sort of you know, like melting pot of all the great loves of my life. That's it. I, I don't think I could say more. <laughs> yeah. And it's super cool. And I'm definitely looking forward to, to when I can spread the word about it. Cause, uh, I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy it. It's um, yeah. Um, I'm I as as soon as we can. I'm uh, very excited to talk about it. I just um I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, so, are there any other uh, any other final thoughts or just any other uh, projects you want to let people know about or anything? Um, no, I think we pretty much covered everything. I will say thank you. I'm like you know I uh I I don't have a lot of time, but I um. I do listen to 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 the podcast, and it's pretty great. I, I feel like um, um, uh, I will be the uh, the low drag on your on your on your uh, on your list for a few weeks. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, um, yeah, it's been yeah, great. Well, oh, it's been yeah, it's been so great talking to you. And so let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with David S. F. Wilson. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David S.F. Wilson for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.